Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Bell-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Lee Hall. Dr. Hall is a professor at the University of Wyoming, where she holds the Wyoming Excellence in Higher Education Endowed Chair in Literacy Education. She taught middle school language arts and social studies in Houston, Texas. Dr. Hall's research centers on helping adolescents improve their academic reading and writing abilities. She examines how teachers can work with diverse learners to help them improve their literacy practices within the context of the classroom. Dr. Hall has also developed a research-tested approach to online professional learning through her online platform, Literacy Teachers, which focuses on helping middle and high school teachers learn the content they need when they need it so that they can provide the literacy instruction their students need. We will share more about this and a special offer at the end of the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Hall. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So can you start by telling our listeners what adolescent literacy is? Because many of the people who listen to this podcast are really focused on foundational reading and may not know much about it. It's a very broad and very deep topic. I don't know that it's possible for me to give like a straightforward, concise definition. But I think what I can do is talk about the different components that make up adolescent literacy, right? So I think When people hear the term, you might be tempted to think, okay, it's all about helping kids read and write in school. And absolutely it is, right? It's all about thinking about the fact that we have this assumption that's sort of ingrained, I think, in our culture, in the school system, where by the time you are 12 years old or older, you should know how to read. You should know how to write. That's not the case for a couple of reasons. As I'm sure you probably know, right, when we do the NAEP testing, there's about 65% of students in the U.S. don't have the reading and writing skills that they need to be able to succeed at grade level. So there's that. You have kids that are legitimately struggling. But also, it's important, I think, to keep in mind that the kinds of things that kids are being asked to read and the kinds of things kids are being asked to write in school as they progress from sixth grade through 12th grade get increasingly difficult and more complex. And so part of adolescent literacy is recognizing that we're asking kids to read these sophisticated texts. We're asking kids to produce sophisticated texts and giving them the support that they need to learn how to up their game to be able to do that. So the instruction that comes around this that needs to be a lot more sophisticated, but also specialized because the ways and the purposes that we read and write in English is not the same thing in science, right? I think that's an obvious example that people can understand. But it's also important to realize too, like in science, the things that count as evidence are not the same things that count as evidence in 
for example, history, right? You have different kinds of data sources. So it's really being nuanced within your discipline and helping your students learn those specialties. So that's one aspect of adolescent literacy, but it's it's so much more than that. So beyond that, it's thinking about how your students really are reading and writing outside of the classroom because they, they are. They might be reading and writing some really sophisticated, complex things. Your students are producing videos. They're making podcasts like this. They're on Instagram. I mean, there's a bunch of social media stuff that they are on. And obviously some of that is just fluff and not anything fantastic, but some of it's actually quite sophisticated to the point where they could teach us a thing or two, right? We all know those kids. There are kids that might not be very good readers in your classroom um, and they might resist reading and tell you they don't like reading. And I've seen these kids go home. I was recently just re- revisiting a student from that was, I think he was a seventh grader, a long time ago that I worked with who was really into graphic novels. And he could tell you how these were really complex things that people thought were simple because they have a bunch of pictures. And he could explain to you how you have to know how to read these different. You can't read them necessarily linearly. And he could explain all the features you had to pay attention to. And then when he went home, he had a little group in his neighborhood where they read these books together. They exchanged them, right? And he was a leader of this group. But in his class, in his school, he was he was not a leader when it came to reading in any way, shape, or form. So part of adolescent literacy is recognizing that kids, uh, all kids are going to have these practices, understand them, and then think about how you can utilize those strengths in your own classroom. And then I would say the third component to adolescent literacy is understanding students' histories with reading and writing in school and out. So, you know, some of your students are going to have these really positive trajectories. Reading, writing has been fun for them. It's been meaningful for them. They've had really good experiences about it. So they're going to step up and, and do some of the harder work. But your students that have had these negative experiences, they've been repeatedly sent messages that you are no good at reading, you're no good at writing, you're always going to struggle, and they don't see themselves getting any better. That's a blockage. It's going to influence how they participate. It's going to influence what they're willing to do in your classroom. And so understanding that social and emotional aspect in relation to reading. So for me, adolescent literacy encompasses that cognitive aspect it encompasses the social and the emotional. It's all of it. And that's true at any age. It just, it's playing out a little differently by the time they get to being teenagers. That uh, <laughs> was a long answer. <laughs> well, it's just, it's really overwhelming when you start thinking about how big and how deep it is. And so you were talking about kids and riding outside of school. So I work with a group of teenagers Uh, with writing and publishing. And so a couple of them have already written novels and Mm -hmm. been published and they write poetry and they do these Mm -hmm. things. And so it's overlooked sometimes by teachers that kids do engage with this outside of school. Mm -hmm. Yep, they do. Absolutely. And what I have found is that any kid that has reading difficulties, I I, I would assume this might might be the case too for writing, but what I found, because I do research with kids that have reading difficulties, is that every single one of them had a reading practice outside of school. Every single one of them. They can talk to you about the books that they read when they go home. They can tell you about trips they take to the library. They can talk to you about what they like and what they don't like. They they all do. So they're all reading. Very interesting. I know that you were a middle school teacher before becoming a professor. 
What experiences in your classroom led you to focus on adolescent literacy? I got into adolescent, working with adolescents on accident. So I started off, I was going to be an elementary school teacher. And I got, I have a bachelor's in elementary education. And when we got to that placement, that final student teaching placement, you had to pick, you could say, I want to be early elementary, in which case they would put you in grades, um, you know, kindergarten through third. Or you could say I want an upper placement, which was grades four through six. I had been in a fourth grade classroom and I had really enjoyed it. And I kind of thought I would enjoy fifth grade. I did not think I would enjoy sixth grade, but I figured the odds, what, one in three, that I would be put in a sixth grade classroom, right? So I just rolled the dice. I got put in a sixth grade classroom <laughs> in, a, you know, in a classroom where those kids really had significant problems with reading and writing. And I fell in love with it. Like I, I had no idea I would enjoy working with adolescents as much as I would. So from there, then I moved into, I didn't want to go to elementary. I wanted to stay with, with middle school. So I fell into it accidentally, but I continued to be really passionate about helping kids get access to text and to reading. Because most of my, my research, all my research has been focused on reading and kids that have right, academic reading difficulties. For me, I had a really good time in school. Let me back up. I did not have a good time in school. I had a really good time with reading in school. Reading came very easily to me. I had a really difficult time with math. And there was a lot of crying and a lot of, you know, I'm no good at this. And so I can understand what these kids think from that perspective, right? And so I wanted, and I knew how miserable I was. So if I could do something that could make it better for them, make it enjoyable for them, right, that would impact their lives, that's what I wanted to do. I think we have similar backgrounds. And as you know, because we've talked about it before, I was trained as a high school English teacher and then became introduced to adolescent literacy in 2005 through the Alabama Reading Initiative's Project for Adolescent Literacy. And it seems like there was a big focus in the early 2000s on adolescent literacy, and then it just kind of dropped off the map. Do you know why this happened? And is there a renewed interest in adolescent literacy? Yeah. So I definitely remember when it exploded because it was it was nice for me. I really liked that 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 was getting that attention. I don't know why it dropped off, right? There was a big push for it. There was funding for people to do research, right? There was there was more funding for schools around adolescent literacy at that time. But it, you know, it's kind of gone by the wayside. But this is how, at least from the academic end of things, this is sort of what I see, right? Like something becomes the new hot thing and it sort of might be a hot thing for three, five, seven years. And then something else becomes the new hot thing. And I I don't know why that is. It's a little frustrating because we haven't solved (laughs) the problems that need to be solved, right? They still need a lot of work, but I do think there are a lot more people out there now that are working on this issue than there was before. So I don't, I don't know why it went away. Well, from my perspective, we need a lot more work on it. So I'm glad that you and other people are doing this. I know you've been involved in training teachers and adolescent literacy practices for quite a while now. What are the hallmarks of what teachers need to know about working with adolescents in the area of literacy? Yeah, the first thing that I always like to say is if your students have an adverse reaction to reading or writing, they are not going to do 
anything that you ask them. Okay, so so it's really important, right? Because I think teachers are focused on what kind of skills and strategies do I need to teach to help my kids? What kind of books should I get them to read? And those are great questions. Those are important questions. And I'm not saying don't pay attention to that because you have to. But I got schooled by a 12 year old <laughs> a long time ago. And I have always check in with kids along the way ever since it pans out. If they think that what you're asking them to do is going to expose their weaknesses, they won't do it. They know that they are compromising their abilities to improve as readers and writers. They know they're compromising their ability to learn content. They know they are compromising their grades. They are completely aware of this. They feel like they have to make this terrible decision about, if do I risk other people seeing me as a weak reader or a weak writer and if I do that, right, I might grow and I might improve, but socially I'm over in their mind, right? And, and you might say, that's not the case. That's not what's going to happen. People aren't going to treat you that way. Or if they do, I'll help you. Those things don't matter <laughs> because it's really that kid's perspective and what they believe. So I've seen teachers just bust their butt doing a bang up job, trying to help their students. And I've had kids tell me, well, I'm not going to do any of those things. And she said, because if I do any of those things that she said, people are going to know that I can't read because they're going to see my struggles out in the open. So I will just choose to not learn, not improve. Now, they want to learn. They want to improve. They do. But they have to make a choice. And they're going to make a choice that's going to benefit them socially. I have found that for like almost 20 years now, over and over and over again. So the most important thing for getting started with adolescent literacy, I think, is understanding your students' perspectives and then working to create a climate where struggling is normalized, right? This understanding that, hey, in my in my English class, this might, you might not really have any struggles. You might enjoy all the things we read and all the things we write, and it might be really easy for you. But in another class, like in a history class or a biology class or physics, you might have a different experience where it's really hard for you and you're struggling to make sense of things. It's on a continuum and it's going to shift and change, right? Constantly. So I think that's what I would tell teachers first is understand your students' perspectives. And you can do this by just asking them a couple of questions. You can just say, how would you describe yourself as a reader? And why do you think this? And they can all tell you. And then what are one or two things that you would like to work on this year? Because one of the things that I have found that's very powerful with students in general is when you ask them, what do you want to work on? And then you incorporate that into your instruction. If you just give them a heads up, if you just say something like, hey, a lot of you said that you want to improve your vocabulary, right? Now, not everybody in the class said that, but right, let's say half of them said that. We're going to do something today to help you with that, right? And here's how it's going to help you. What I have found is when you set up a dynamic like that, students will say, man, my teacher really, she's listening. She's listening to all of us. And I have found that these kids that typically won't participate are like, she's really trying and she's trying to help me meet my goals. So because I see her trying to work with me, I'm going to step out and work with her and try to, you know, do the things that she's asking of me. So I think that that makes struggle normal. And then the other thing that I would recommend that you do that's super easy is get rid of the term. What do good readers do? Just get rid of it because what your struggling readers are going to say is, well, she tells me this is what good readers do. And I look at it and go, well, I can't do that. And even though you're not up there saying, if you can't do this, you're a bad reader, right? Nobody's saying that. 
but that's what they're thinking, right? So if we just get rid of that language, then we help to eliminate some of that thinking. So we're just trying to make this space where they can take risks. That's what, that's how I would start. Fabulous advice. I was taking notes. (laughs) I feel like those are really things that you can do right out of the gate. You can keep teaching the way you want to teach. You can keep using the books you want to, you want to use, but just changing the language and changing the environment a little bit can make a huge impact. I agree. So you've been involved in a lot of research on training teachers and literacy practices using online professional development. Mm -hmm. What have you learned and what options exist that you could share with our listeners? So for online professional development, one of the things that I've seen, because I've done, you know, I've done searches and kind of looked at what are, what's out there, what are people offering? It tends to be mostly element, if, if there are literacy courses, because there's not, some, some places just don't offer that many literacy courses, but some do. If they do, they tend to be mostly elementary based, not so much for middle and high school teachers. The other thing is, right, it's treated really like a class, like a typical university class. Even if it's asynchronous and they send you the content, you can go through it on your own. There's usually some sort of a deadline, right? Like you have access to this for this many months and then that's it, you're done. And I really feel like, and what got me started on this is we can really shift that space. There's no reason that I can tell to keep those old models in place. With my work, we focus on PD that is, elementary teachers have taken it, but it is geared for middle and high school teachers, right? It's, that's, that's my main goal is to provide online learning, professional content for middle and high school teachers to help them address the reading and writing needs of their students. Plenty of elementary teachers have wandered in and have found it to be super beneficial. So there's that. We don't have a start date. We don't have an end date. When you join or if you outright buy a course, it's yours, period. You always have access to the content. And the teachers that I've talked to about this really like that because somebody will take a course, let's say you take a course on how to assess students' writing. Um, You take that in September, but you're really not ready to use it till like end of October maybe, and you've forgotten some things. Well, if the course has locked you out because your time is up, then, you know, what are you supposed to do, right? And that's ridiculous. So they go back in and then you can just hit whatever you need to hit and watch whatever videos you might need to rewatch so that you can get get your head around what you need to do and then go off and do it. The one thing that I I would like, and, and if there's anybody, any teachers out there that have any thoughts, ideas, input on this, I would love to hear it. These online courses in mine too are really, they're not super interactive. And by super interactive, I mean, there's not like a community built around them where people are sharing and discussing work. I have tried to build that out. And the feedback that I've gotten is people largely are uninterested in it, that they find the courses to be enough, even though research says that it's compromising your learning to some extent in an online environment, right? You want to have some kind of social interaction and discussion, reading, you know, talking about your work or the work of others, and that'll help improve your own understandings. Even when people have that information, they've said, yeah, that's okay. (laughs) I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good with what I got here. So if anybody out there happens to have any suggestions, I'm I'm totally open because I would really like to see an interactive, thriving community in conjunction with professional development. But if it doesn't meet people's needs, if it's not what people want, then it's not, it's not going to happen. So, but in general, I found people really like having that open access 
the content. And I keep my courses very short. So when we started, we had them at 15 hours. And then we started, like you could finish the whole thing with the work in 15 hours. But then we started experimenting with five hours and making them even more like just drill down your focus on just how to assess students writing, right? How to write nonfiction, just something very specific. And people really liked that. They liked that better than 15 hours. While we do still offer 15 hour courses, most of it's now shifted to these smaller, takes you about five hours to do. And they're super focused. There's no prerequisites. You are the judge of what you know and what you don't know. And I'm not going to monitor that for you. So if you feel like you start watching, you know, going through a course and you're like, I don't need this information. I already know this, or I thought it was going to be useful, but it's totally not relevant to my context. Just leave, just leave, go take something else. It's fine. It's fine. And I really think PD needs to be more flexible like that so that the teachers have a choice. You know what you need to learn and you know who your students are and what they need, right? So some teachers are making decisions about what to take based on, you know, just their own background knowledge and what they want to beef up. But, and, and some look at their students and go, oh, they really need help, right? With learning comprehension strategies. My knowledge on comprehension strategies is so-so. So let me go take a course on that. That's how I think PD needs to be. Not, we're all going to show up the whole school and you're going to hear a workshop on this topic because that topic, whatever it is, is going to be useful to probably just a small subset of people. Other people, they're not ready for it or it's irrelevant to their context. So, Have you looked at any of the knowledge building work, say that Natalie Wexler, her book, um, The Knowledge Gap. And so really one of the causes supposedly for much of our students' comprehension issues is a lack of background knowledge and uh, vocabulary that is associated with um, content that is subject focused in early grades. And so there's a huge movement for this very rich content building in the early grades and the connection between that and later success as, uh, as a reader. Yeah. So, right. Absolutely. Right. If you're missing background knowledge, if you're lacking vocabulary, right, that's going to impact. And then that starts to spiral over time. Right. And so, I mean, I can think about that with my bad experiences in math. So a struggling reader can tell you, they can pinpoint it to like first grade, second grade, they all can do this and they can tell you about these bad experiences. And then they can talk about how it progressed through the grades. They, they're very good at that. So anybody that's listening to this, if you want to have an interesting discussion with a middle or high schooler, ask them about their history with reading in school. Ask them about why they think the things that they do and take, and they'll take you back to elementary and, and walk you through it. It's very fascinating to listen to. I know like for me, when I was doing really poorly with math, I didn't master stuff in second grade that I was supposed to master. And then you get to third grade and now I'm supposed to have those skills at least average, adequate, and I don't, and we're building on them and it's all falling apart. So, right, if you don't get that background knowledge and you don't get that vocabulary, right, it's going to pile on over time. But I do think too, the one thing to remember here that I think in policy discussions often gets left out is at the end of the day, those kids have a lot of power. They get to decide what they're going to do, when and how. You can make life as uncomfortable for them as they want, they are going to decide what they want to do, when and how. Policymakers, I think, talk about here's what we need to do to kids so that they are better readers, better writers, and they learn. 
And you guys, I, I always want to say to them, you guys forget that the kids actually decide what's, what they're going to do, right? And some of these kids have told me, no, no, I quit doing this stuff years ago. I'm not doing it. So I would say, yes, that's critical. But we also need to make sure that we're building in these positive experiences with reading from an early age and normalizing struggle from an early age. And it's not anything to be ashamed of. It's a normal thing. And working through that struggle can make you stronger and it will help you learn that background information. It will help you learn that vocabulary. And I think if we're transparent, it doesn't need to be a lecture, just transparent. Here's how this is going to help you. Boom. Tell them. Here's what I'm going to ask you today. Some of you might find this scary because, but that's okay because we're here and we're all going to help each other get through it. And so creating that environment so they don't fall behind is super critical. And it speaks volumes to how important that classroom culture Yes. And the feeling of safety where I can trust you to help me and you not judge me or ridicule me for it. So yeah, we're learning. You're not supposed to be a master. You're learning. And next year you got to do it again and you got to do it again. And it's going to be, sometimes it's going to be fun and easy and sometimes it's not. And everybody experiences that to some degree. One of the struggles that I think that we have in reaching young adults is the types of reading that we give them. And so the the things that we often throw at them to read really have very little to do in some ways with their reality. We are scared sometimes to give them the young adult books because they contain potentially sensitive or disturbing content, things that are controversial. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on, on how to navigate that balance between the kind of classical canon of literature that we want kids to be exposed to as far mm-hmm. as just you know having some background knowledge about uh, what we believe mm-hmm. in as a culture and right. also encouraging them to read things that are interesting to them. And, and I will just be honest, when I taught, uh, I did a lot with young adult literature and it was often controversial. I had conversations with parents who were wondering, why would you choose a book? And it has profanity. Uh, and of course, I would think your kid rode to school on the bus today and they probably heard twice as bad things on the bus today. And so but I get that the words on the page are more powerful, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think, right, this this is a particular challenge, especially in English classrooms. And I, and I think you're right, right? Because kids don't necessarily connect to Moby Dick, right? Or whatever, right? They, they, they don't. In English, right, books are the curriculum. So, you know, like if you take another discipline, you might be able to get at it differently because books aren't the curriculum, but in English books are the curriculum. But I do think right, you want kids to have positive experiences, you want them to connect, right, and explore issues that are relevant to them. Um, But then you also have this purpose of making sure they connect with specific types of books, right, like To Kill a Mockingbird, right, it's the classic ninth grade English book. I loved it. I can still remember reading it, but I'm sure there were other kids in my class that did not enjoy reading it. So I think there's a couple of things. First of all, whether you're using a classic book is to think ahead of time, like what are the issues in here that are relevant or the themes, right, that are relevant that my kids can connect to and bring them in that way, right? So if you can choose if you have a choice in in those books, right, then choose the ones that are going to be the most likely to do that. 
Now, if you're sort of anxious, maybe about, I don't want to assign a young adult, a young adult novel. Several years ago, I worked in a summer program. It was for um, high schoolers that were going to be first, the first person in their family to go to college. And that's something right? I was supposed to help them learn how to write memoirs. So we were reading, right? Obviously, we were reading a bunch of memoirs. And so one day we had, you know, like 10 minutes left or something. And I said, you guys might as well start reading the next memoir. And they want, these are 16 year olds. They wanted me to read it to them. They said, will you read out loud to us? And I, I was very puzzled by this. And I said, you're 16, 17, you want me to read it? And they said, everybody thinks that we're too old. And they said, we miss it. Like there's something very soothing to them about it. And I said, I will read to you as long as you are paying attention. Like you don't have to follow along, but you have to clearly be paying. And they did, they paid attention. They would stop. They would want to talk about things. They had questions, whatever. So you could find a young adult book that is engaging that maybe you don't want to assign that you can just do as a read aloud. They're going to be super open to it. And one of the things that I did as a middle school teacher, because I did do read alouds, is I had a committee of like, I don't know, three or four kids. And the committee rotated. I think, you know, after each book was read, the next would be a different committee. And that committee was responsible for picking like two to three books that they thought we should do as a read aloud. And then they were responsible for presenting those books to the class and talking about them and why they had been selected. And then we voted on it. And then that's the book that we used. So, and that's also another route, right? Even if you're assigning young adult novels that you can go is to really put the students front and center and let them choose if you can. But if nothing else, you can have them choose for a read aloud for sure. But I would say making those themes that are connecting to their lives and pointing it out, right? If you're reading Shakespeare, you have to, right? You have to learn how to read Shakespeare. You have to, it's a whole new way of comprehending things, right? So if you're reading something that that's so new to you, that style, and it's so dense when you're learning it, as the teacher, you're going to have to pop that out and, and explicitly point out and guide them through where these themes that are part of their life are connecting, right? You're going to have to really work a lot harder at that than you probably will at a young adult book or even like To Kill a Mockingbird because To Kill a Mockingbird's not written like Shakespeare. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's what I would do. And be sensitive to your community, obviously. Some people are going to have more freedom. Other people are going to just feel like their hands are tied and they have to do what they you know, are told to do and they don't have any choice. So if you don't have any choice, then I just think it's super important to have kids see that it's relevant. But then also kids do much better with the controversial text than the adults. <laughs> That's right. It never was a child saying, I don't want to do this. It was the parent saying, I don't, I don't know about this. And so, you know, and I get that as a parent, you know, that you're certainly wanting to monitor and protect your child from mm-hmm. things. And so when you're talking about read alouds, I was thinking of a creative writing class that I taught for years and um, I read aloud crazy in Alabama. And there mm-hmm. were certainly parts of it that were not appropriate. And so I would just skip over that. Sure. And what my kids did was they all went out and they bought the novel themselves so they could see what I was skipping over and and so they were so engaged with it but you know I do think that there's ways to delicately step around controversial material but I do get that people are concerned about it but then knowing what I know about kids wanting to connect with text Mm -hmm. then I think sometimes it's worth it so I do too. Any parting thoughts on just adolescent literacy in general? I would say all of your students 
want to be better readers and writers. They want to learn. They do. You might run into the kid that says, I don't like to read. I don't want, I'm not going to do this. That's just the outer shell. Once you get into the inner shell, those kids that are fighting you, they're just scared. They're feeling fear. They're feeling shame. They're feeling embarrassment, right? And what I think once you understand that, then it, help, it sort of opens it up and it can give you access to them to help them start taking baby steps. So I'm thinking about like your kid that's in the room that's just like, arms crossed, scowl on his face. He's not going to do it. Find a baby step that he will agree with you on. And I say he, because most of, most of the teenagers that have reading difficulties are boys. Find a baby step that he can make. And it's, it can be something as basic as tomorrow, we're going to be talking about, you know, whatever we read in class today. I want you to come prepared with like just a couple of sentences that you can say or a question that you have. And I want you to come to my room, like as soon as you get to school, I want you to share it with me. We can talk about it. I can take a quick look at it, make sure it's all good so that when you say it, you know it's gonna be good. That kid agrees and then tell them, you know, if you don't raise, if you raise your hand, I'll call on you. But if you don't raise your hand, I'm still gonna call on you anyways. So you decide how you give that kid, put that kid in control. Raise your hand or let me pick pick you, right? Decide and then do it. And then once they do that, then pick another baby step, right? So just kind of getting them out of their shell to sort of nudge them forward, but letting them be in control of that and let them come up with ideas of how they can participate and put some things forward and, and let them try it. Because like I said, even though policymakers want to act like it's the teachers doing stuff to the kids, it's really working. It's a partnership that we have with our students. And uh, once you really enter into that with them and they really see that, it can take like three, four, five months for some of these kids before they really feel solid, right? So if you started implementing some of this stuff in August, September, you might not see any changes until January like noticeable. Oh, I didn't have to tell him to do that. And he's doing it. Oh, he's talking more. Oh, right. Be okay with that. This is a slow progress. So if your kids are just getting any time to do it, but they absolutely want that opportunity. Thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate what you're doing for our adolescent readers and their teachers. And I love this conversation about adolescent literacy. And hopefully this will spark more conversations to come. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast. For Alabama Literacy Network audience members, here is a special offer from Dr. Hall. She is offering a free course in adolescent literacy. Her other PD is normally $99.00. And 99 cents a year for unlimited access to 70 plus courses focused exclusively on literacy. You can get 25% off the annual pass with the code Alabama Literacy. You can also check out her course catalog online. All this information will be on our Twitter page.